It's Tuesday, July 7th. Welcome to Market Foolery. I'm Chris Hill with me, the one and only Bill Barker. Good to see you. Good to be here. We have another acquisition in the entertainment industry. Uh, we have a very important investing anniversary that is coming up, and we're going to talk about that. But we got to start with, um, well, essentially COVID-19 stocks, um, and in particular, Novavax and Regeneron. Um, shares of Regeneron up about 3-4% uh, because Regeneron has got a $450 million grant from Uncle Sam um, to make and supply a double antibody cocktail that's being tested against COVID-19. And that's a nice bump for shares of Regener uh, Regeneron. That pales in comparison to Novavax because those shares are up about 30% because Uncle Sam gave Novavax, which is a biotech firm I had never heard of until today, $1.6 billion uh, to develop a potential vaccine for uh, COVID-19. Um, you know, this is, this, is, uh, this is the environment that we're in right now, where these types of things happen, maybe not a daily basis, but certainly on a weekly basis. Well, in your defense, as to never having heard of Novavax before, one of the reasons might be that it's never had a drug approved uh, or, or sold uh, on the market. And uh, this was a company that had a stock uh, for 3 or $4 at the end of uh, last year, it's going for 100 and, 100 and change today. So, uh, 25x uh, this year, pretty good um, for a company that uh, does now have a 1.6 billion dollar uh, pile of cash, or supposedly does. Uh, I think the announcement uh, included uh, the information that Novavax isn't quite sure what department uh, uh, this money is coming from. You know, uh, so. It, it, there's there's real work being done. I don't want to uh, diminish at all what could be an excellent uh, opportunity to confront uh, COVID. But um, you know, for a company that has really next to no sales, and um, it, this is this is still more on uh, the long shot with a, with a high return if everything works out well, than you know the the kind of thing that you would want to bet heavily on uh, if it were your only bet. And we talk all the time about the importance of diversification, and it seems like if you're looking to invest into a vaccine for COVID-19, you absolutely don't want to bet on one horse. You you actually want to buy shares of several businesses that you think have a shot at this, because presumably um, there's going to be a pot of gold at the end of this vaccine rainbow. Well, the pot of gold is an interesting concept because, of course, if you talk to what people want and what they think, uh, it is probably that uh, companies are, are hopefully uh, working very hard on this uh, and that then um, it should be made uh, readily available for free to everybody. I mean, somebody has to pick up the bill, uh, whether it's individuals, whether whether it's their health care plans, whether it's the government, whether it's a combination of all of that. Uh, and so the pile of gold uh, that seems obvious for whoever provides the best solution here uh, becomes more complicated. Uh, but you've got Regeneron as well today. This is a more established company. 
several billion dollar um, a year revenue uh, company and and sort of uh, consistent increases in its business and and it's not a one shot wonder. They're working on a treatment uh, and and preventive uh, cocktail of drugs, uh, which hopefully will. Uh, continue to show uh, effective results as I believe uh, they have so far in trial. Um, this is not, they're not on the vaccine side. Uh, both, both of course are very important and both are, uh, you know, celebrated today by the market. Well, and you know, for context on Regeneron, only up about 3% today, but uh, up somewhere in the neighborhood of 75% year to date. So it's, uh, if you're a Regeneron shareholder, you're, you're, you're doing fine. Yeah. Well, this today's news is not um, coming out of nowhere. They've they've had published uh, results of the the trials they've done, uh, and so yes, it's had a, a number of of days where good news uh, has gone out into the market. Uh, Novavax already was up. You know, as I said, it was a three four dollar stock at the end of last year, uh, and was going into today in the. Uh, 70 whatever dollars a share. Uh, so there was already, obviously, their, their work on the vaccine was known. Uh, this support, um, which is, uh, you know, for $1.6 billion uh, for a company of this size uh, is, is extremely meaningful. Perhaps, you know, their proximity, their offices being uh, here in the Washington, D.C. area gave them some advantages in uh, negotiating this uh, uh, this deal. Um, they're also uh, in Sweden, so it's it's not all sort of Rockville, Gaithersburg, uh, U.S. offices. But I think uh, location, location, location may have worked at least not to their disadvantage. Sirius XM is nearing a deal to buy Stitcher, which is the podcast division currently owned by EW Scripts. SiriusXM is going to pay a reported $300 million to EW Scripts for Stitcher. And Stitcher has networks with shows like Freakonomics Radio, Conan O'Brien Needs a Friend. They also own the mid-roll ad network, which works with hundreds of shows, some of them among the most popular podcasts out there. WTF with Mark Marin, My Favorite Murder, um, this this continues another trend that we've seen in 2020, which is large entertainment companies making pretty sizable investments in the podcasting space. Yeah, uh, whether uh, and and Sirius uh, continues to sort of try to be everywhere where people might be listening to either music or uh, voice uh, audio. Um, so I think uh, you know this is this is an area where I feel very comfortable asking you all the questions about uh, what you think about this deal, um, since uh, this is this is right in your wheelhouse. Uh, I think it's a good deal for, for both parties. I'm a little surprised that EW Scripps shares aren't higher because, boy, did they turn a tidy profit. Uh, I think they spent a combined $34 million to buy Stitcher and Midroll, and now they're turning around and selling it for three hundred million, and maybe it's a sign of what people think about the state of the newspaper business, uh, which is you know uh, 
arguably the larger part of EW scripts. Um, but I think it's a, a smart investment by SiriusXM. I mean, they're they're getting um, they're getting access to some of the most popular shows and certainly some of the most well-established networks out there. So, um, in the same way that some people looked at Spotify's acquisition of The Ringer as, among other things, uh, a talent grab. I think when you look at uh, some of the networks that are underneath the Stitcher umbrella, I think it's the it's a similar type of move by SiriusXM. They're they're gonna you know if they have someone really smart who's running this acquisition, um, then some really really good fruit could be born out of all of this above and beyond uh, some of the shows I already mentioned. Well, and you can explain perhaps, uh, you know, so Stitcher is a platform. They've got some of their own content, but also just a platform. Like many people might be listening to this as a podcast. People are watching it right now, uh, Motley Fool Live, but uh, as a podcast. uh, But, uh, you know, Stitcher does not own the Motley Fool podcast. No, um, our, our podcasts are on their platform, just like we're on Apple Podcasts or Google Play or Spotify or, you know, any of the other uh, platforms that are out there. Uh, and and in terms of their, I guess they, they've got a good, uh, good number, a growing number for ad sales um, there. And uh, you know, I, I, what do you what do you see what do you see happening next in this space? Uh, who's who's next on the you know for sale after uh, everything we've seen already this year? It's going to be interesting to see if if um, any other large shows. I mean, to me, it'll be interesting to see if any other really popular shows sort of follow the move that uh, uh, Joe Rogan did. Um, Joe Rogan owns his own show, but um, he's going to have this exclusivity deal with Spotify. Um, so, you know, I'm sure people have approached Mark Marin and Conan O'Brien about similar types of deals, and maybe they're just like, no, I'm, I'm good where I am. Um, but um, it, it will be interesting to see the extent to, in the same way that we see with streaming video, where Amazon Prime, Netflix, Hulu, Disney Plus, you know, they're they're making um, this uh, grab for exclusive content, um, and you know, at the Motley Fool, we're just we're we're platform agnostic. We we're, we're we're happy being everywhere. We're not looking to lock up exclusivity, but um, but I think that uh, that that'll be one more thing to watch because I I think that. In terms of like major platforms, I don't I don't know that there are any other sort of three hundred four hundred million dollar deals out there unless it's for exclusive content. So for those that are interested in you know the advantages and disadvantages for exclusivity, uh, Joe Rogan is uh, sort of in almost a category of one, not quite a category of one with with his show, uh, but. You know, you're at, at conferences, or you used to be at conferences. Maybe now you still back watch when one conferences now were a thing that people went <laughs> back, to. Yeah, back, back back in the late uh, teens, uh, back when we had these conferences. Uh, you know, and and this would have been, you know, the various business models that are out there. And how would you say that uh, it, it's an easy decision for for you, for the Molly Fool, to be platform agnostic, but. Uh, for others, what are they balancing? Um, you know, between the ads, between 
having to condition some of the content of the podcast so that they don't lose advertisers? Uh, who is it that can get you know a direct pay? You know, and 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 the platforms. Uh, what you know? What are the pros and cons for Joe Average, uh, good but not you know top five out there podcasts? I think for the overwhelming majority of people who do podcasts, they're just looking to grow their audience, and they are also platform agnostic because they don't really have um, the audience and sort of the leverage to um, create those type of exclusive deals. Because you're right. I mean, Joe Rogan is is basically in a category of one. Um, now, there are there is a price at which, you know, any podcaster would say, oh, okay, yeah, I will give up my um, multi-platform approach for that amount of money just to be on that one platform. But, um, you know, there, there has to be something in it for the platform, too. Like, Spotify presumably wouldn't have done that deal with Rogan unless they felt good about the return they were going to get. SiriusXM probably feels pretty good about the amount of money they just spent or are about to spend to get Stitcher and uh, the ad network and the associated shows. Well, they're they're known for throwing some uh, some big figures around. I can't remember what the Howard Stern deal was or the the re up on that was, um, uh, but they they know the value of of having uh, content that you can't get anywhere else. Thank you for mentioning Howard Stern because that's probably the next domino to fall um, in in sort of the audio entertainment space because I believe his contract is up at the end of twenty twenty. And to this point, SiriusXM has said all the right things in terms of, we would love to continue working with Howard Stern and, and all of that sort of thing. Um, we'll see where that goes. So yeah, that's, that's probably the next big shoe with millions of dollars attached to it that's about to drop. Um, regulation fair disclosure, not something that is uh, particularly um, sexy in terms of a topic, um, but I think for, I know, for everyone listening to this podcast, for everyone watching us on Fool Live, for every investor out there, regulation fair disclosure has made their lives better. Um, and the reason I mention this is because our, our good friend and longtime colleague, Uncle Joe Mager, uh, down in Australia, um, uh, tweeted last week um, uh, a little something about uh, it was uh, July 2nd, and it was sort of the anniversary of a, uh, a Wall Street Journal article from July 2nd, 2001, with Arthur Levitt, chairman of the SEC at the time, where Arthur Levitt was giving a, a huge amount of credit, and rightly so, in my opinion, to The Motley Fool for the passage of Regulation Fair Disclosure. Um, you had um, a role in helping make that happen. Um, it actually, the anniversary comes up next month. I believe it's August 15th. Uh, we're going to celebrate a little early because you know what? We had a hand in this and, and we get to celebrate a little early. Um, but as I said, every investor benefits from regulation fair disclosure. Um, let me see if I can set this up uh, for folks listening and who are w wondering if they should keep listening because <laughs> what I've said so far probably sounds pretty boring. Um, right up until, uh, well, the late 1990s, um, companies could disclose information, material to their business, to a very small amount of investors. That was just the way Wall Street operated. And by the way, that's how it operated forever. That 
a company could have material news. They could say, hey, our earnings are coming out in three weeks, but we're going to do a conference call with analysts from the eight biggest firms on Wall Street and tip them off that we're about to put in a, a really big quarter. It's going to beat expectations. They can tip off their clients. That was how business was done on Wall Street until Reg FD was proposed. And uh, as the name suggests, fair disclosure was simply a rule that said, you know what? All investors are the same. We're going to treat all investors the same in terms of information from public companies. So mom and pop individual investors like you and me and everyone listening and everyone watching on Fool Live, they get information the same time that Goldman Sachs gets the information. That's how it's going to be. And maybe we shouldn't be surprised, but I know that anytime I talk to a younger person uh, at our company and, and talk about Reg FD, they're surprised when I explain to them that there was significant pushback. There were smart, established people with good reputations in the financial world who were saying, whoa, 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 are you kidding? We're gonna, we're, everyone's going to get the information? That's, no, that's a bad idea. That's a bad idea. When did Reg FD first come into your field of vision as an employee of The Motley Fool in 1999? Well, I think the proposal uh, was sometime in uh, early, mid-December, and there was a couple, maybe there was a 30-day, maybe there was a 60-day proposed comment period. Um, and I, having a legal background, um, saw that and thought I would write about it. And uh, we were just in the right time and the right place uh, for this. I mean, we had established, um, you know, a, a relationship with our audience of, of individual investors. It was December 1999. The market was doing gangbusters and everybody was happy uh, with with us, with anybody uh, who, who was uh, talking stocks because everybody was was making money. And um, but it was still the case that uh, Wall Street uh, owned the communications channel uh, with companies. Uh, and so this rule, which was uh, Arthur Levitt, uh, then uh, head of the SEC, had put a lot of work into and, and put out for comments. And I saw that and wrote an article. And, I, you know, I, looking back on it, the title of the article uh, was uh, SEC Levels the Playing Field. This is a boring title. There were no companies mentioned in the article. This was not a, as as sometimes you need to do in in the job of internet writing, have a sexy title or have tickers of companies, and that gets distributed through various channels. It had no mention of a company. It had the most boring title in the world, but it was in a place in the Motley Fool editorial, which um, was was prominent. It was a, a column called Fool on the Hill came out once a day. And uh, was sort of the oftentimes. Yeah, I was going to say, b back when the Motley Fool, unlike today, when there are hundreds of articles being published on Fool.com, this is late 1999 when I believe somewhere in the neighborhood of three to five articles would be published on, on the site. There, there were about there was high single digits, low double digits. Maybe as eleven. We had a bunch of portfolios that had uh, daily updates, a couple news articles, but uh, but but it was the, the various. Uh, articles were sort of appointment viewing in a way that, that it's hard to do now to get people to come to your site on purpose 
to and and then go to a specific thing that that you want to talk to them about and uh i wrote it uh turned out uh my my uh, oldest daughter was almost born um the night that i ha- was on deadline for this and uh long boring story but she wasn't and and so i ended up having the time to write the article that i was obliged to write um had had she been born that night i i might well not have gotten my article in and somebody else would have taken that slot and written about something else and and we might not have had the role we we ended up having there were it generated there were about three articles uh and maybe an interview with uh, arthur levitt uh, who noticed what we were doing and and wanted to uh, uh support it um total of six thousand comments um which was at the time unheard of for a government agency to receive six thousand comments about a, a, a rule you know and nowadays six thousand comments is you know the response to a to a mediocre tweet, um, but at the time, it was a volume and it was a, a surge of, you know, individual attention to something that uh, had never been seen before. Yeah, and to go back to uh, the tweet uh, from Joe Mager, where he he cites uh, Levitt's comments. Um, Two thirds of our comments came from fools. Without them, Reg FD would not have happened because, again, there were smart, established people saying, no, this is a bad idea. Um, and Levitt, uh, I would argue, needed sort of to be able to point to an unprecedented amount of comments on an SEC website because usually, you know, when they open up for public comments back then, it was you know, people within the industry sort of commenting on behalf of their company or their shareholders, that sort of thing. In terms of sheer volume, they had never seen anything like what they had seen with Reg FD. Um, Jim Cramer, um, at the time, was against this, publicly so. Um, he has since um, said publicly on numerous occasions uh, when the topic has come up, I was wrong. I was, I was, I was arguing that Reg FD should not be passed, and I... I when I look back on that, I realize I was wrong. But at the time, he was against it, and uh, when it came down to a vote, it was three to two. I mean, it was it was it was not a slam dunk, but it did pass. Um, I, I want to get to at least one other thing before we wrap up, which is um, something you had reminded me of this morning. Um, I, I'm sure you had told me before, and I, I just forgot. Like like most, most things, things you tell me. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but. You ended up going to a meeting after it had passed. So Reg FD passes, um, it gets finalized. It's, you can go to the SEC website, see April, uh, August 15th, 2000, um, the rule is passed. Um, it's going to be implemented in late October of 2000. But you ended up going to a meeting. What, what was the meeting? Well, it was a closed meeting. Um, SEC hosted, I guess, mostly industry uh, people, but uh, we were invited um, to send somebody and, and I got to be the person to go um, and to, to sort of work through the next steps. Now that the vote had been taken and, and the rule had been approved, um, what what happens next? And there was uh, the head, I guess, of the uh, SIA, the Securities Industry Association, now part of SIFMA, um, who... I thought this was this was brave. Um, it certainly 
gave me a few laughs, but um, he, he sort of took the position that to, to open up the meeting that, okay, we had this vote, whatever, but really what we now need to do is to have and uh, use the, a blue chip panel, blue chip commission, um, look at the issues and help comment on what a better rule would be. And to just pretend this hasn't happened. But out of the goodness of our hearts, we will now consider taking a first step down this this sort of road. And the uh, representative from the SEC just, it was one of those things where I think he just kind of blinked and, and, and said, uh, no, this is, this is <laughs> the vote's been taken. This is a done deal. There's no, <laughs> let's, let's, let's get back to the agenda. And, you know, that individual had a job to do and a role to play and, and all that. When, when the, before the meeting started, he was going around handing out cards, handed out, you know, one to me. I handed him my, my Motley Fool card. And, and wow, was that a cold moment? Because, because we, you know, we, were the, we were the bad guys to him, to him and his industry of, of analysts that had a great, great setup. I mean, they got market-moving information. There's no question that, you know, there's market-moving information uh, that, that is distributed by companies at conference calls um, and, and in private meetings other than conference calls. And Wall Street got as much of that as they, they could. It was a great, great setup for them. And um, I don't blame them for trying to keep it. But, uh, you know, I don't celebrate them for trying to keep it either. No, no, no. They had a great run. I understand why they fought to keep the uh, the, the cushy setup that they had, but that's wonderful that you handed They've them a business They've got mouths card. to feed over there. They've got mortgages to pay. They've got second and third mortgages to pay. How, how are they going to pay that third mortgage without this kind of access to information that nobody else has? And again, just to put a bow on this, I know this is a business news show, but I, I did feel like this little bit of financial history that, again, benefits all investors, less so the well-heeled ones on Wall Street, but more so everyday investors like us and those listening and watching. Um, I, I know we're Phil, going over time. I, I just got to say that uh, the only way to find the original article is to go back uh, to the Wayback Machine on uh, archive.org. Um, I tried to look for uh, Kramer's response, but that was not available on the Wayback Machine. But uh, in reference to a tweet I made yesterday that we would be talking about Rocky and Bullwinkle, that, that's what the reference is. The, the Wayback Machine, uh, critical part of uh, Rocky and Bullwinkle, I feel. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, you, you learned history when uh, they got in the Wayback Machine, didn't you? Oh yeah, well they made they made a move full length movie, and uh, someday they'll do a, a you know a live action uh, version of uh, Sherman and Peabody, no doubt. The Wayback Machine needs uh, someone needs to come up with something else called and call it the Wayback Machine because that's that's a that's a pretty good brand. Um, Bill Barker, thanks for this walk down memory lane. Always good talking to you. Thank you. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about on the Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. That's going to do it for this edition of Market Foolery. The show is mixed by Dan Boyd. I'm Chris Hill. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you tomorrow.